Father, we praise and thank you that you've brought us thus far. We thank you for Ruth chapter 4 and the wonderful climax and conclusion to what you've been doing in these people's lives. We thank you for the fact that this changes our lives. And we pray that as we read your word, you would speak, and by your spirit we would be changed. For your glory's sake. Amen. The man with no name. Oh, sorry, wrong one. Clint Eastwood. One of his most iconic roles. He's a drifter, the archetype of the strong, silent male who gets the job done at whatever price. But there's mystery about him that makes him so magnetic and even heroic. But remember, he's a bounty hunter, a gun for hire. So he's the classic anti-hero, in fact. And as the trilogy progressed, uh, the three movies that Clint Eastwood played in, Eastwood kept insisting on cutting more and more lines from the script. So it's not often you get an actor wanting to say less. And yet here, that's exactly what Eastwood was doing. And the fact that we don't know his name makes him all the more intriguing. Where's he come from? What's his backstory? Why is he so silently ruthless? We'll never know. It's left to our imagination. But when the Bible describes an individual without giving their name, we're not meant to be intrigued at all. In fact, it's a sign of disapproval. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? The man who lived a life of abject, agonizing poverty is the one immortalized by a name, Lazarus. Is it significant that when creating this parable, this story, Jesus gives him the name of one of his closest and dearest friends? I think probably. The Sunday Times rich list guy who walks past him every day without a single glance, he never even took the trouble to ask his name in life, now faces the consequences of judgment. In life, he had the recognition and prestige, all the recognition and prestige money could buy. In death, he was just another anonymous rich kid. Nothing left behind except a reputation for callous indifference to poverty. Why is a name so important? Well, to know someone's name is to be in relationship with them. You can't know their name until it's been revealed to you. Which is why the first thing we do when we meet one another is to introduce ourselves. My name is X. But more crucial than that, especially in the ancient world, to know somebody's name was to know their family and their heritage, who they belonged to, as we were thinking about yesterday, their tribe, their clan, their household. I guess today, because populations are so mobile, names don't really have the same effect. They can be used to identify individuals from their contemporaries, but they don't give them a familial or historical context. Even as recently, perhaps, as 50 years ago in this country, most people stayed in their home region, so then your surname would enable people to get a sense of place and location and belonging to you. But that doesn't happen anymore, certainly not in London. Well, the man with no name in our story, he did have a context and he did have a family. That's one of the intriguing things. We know that he's part of the family of Elimelech. That's the whole point. 
In fact, he's a closer cousin than Boaz was. So I'm sure they all knew his name. But we don't. As far as the story is concerned, he might have been as far removed as anybody. Because for this man, we just have a blank. In fact, the NIV is over generous to him. Look down in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. And remember on the recording it said family guardian. It should be kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. That's a much tighter translation as we'll see. The word redeemer is crucial. But um, <clears throat> we read that in verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, Boaz is, is translated to say, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. Well, the Hebrew is actually a bit more abrasive than that. Uh, Boaz would certainly have known his name. I mean, you know, they probably grew up together. They're, they're cousins. And let's face it, you know, Bethlehem was not a seething metropolis. But instead of my friend, Boaz actually says, sit down here, so-and-so, or what's your name? That's what it literally means, what's your name? Sit down here, what's your name? Which actually is a bit rude. But I guess from what happens in the story, the narrator is making a serious point. And so let's think about what is going on here as we think of this redemption. Just to recap on where, where we've been, basically, do you remember it all started because Elimelech took his family away from famine-striven uh, Israel and moves to enemy ter- territory to Moab. And they settle in, they get stuck in, they become part of the culture there. Their sons even marry local girls. But all three men die. The family has, faces two weddings and three funerals in the space of about 10 years. And then eventually, the three women decide they must come back. But of course, one of them, rightly, understandably, Orpah, decides to stay behind in her culture. And we are meant to assume that she was doing the sensible thing. It was Ruth who was being mad. But she was coming back because of her chesed, her covenant love, her committed love for Naomi. And they come back, and they are incredibly vulnerable. But the amazing thing is, there's this guy, Boaz who does the right thing, keeping the law to look after the oppressed. Well, in our first conversation in chapter 4, we find a conversation between two, well, rival kinsmen redeemers. Uh, And Ruth, actually, the bizarre thing about chapter 4 is that Ruth almost completely fades into the background in chapter 4. We don't hear her speak again. Um, and the camera sort of moves in, hoves in, homes in on this most fateful of conversations. And we can see the world changing forever as a result. We're at the town gate where all local business was done. So I guess it was the equivalent of, I don't know, the municipal town hall, uh, the local magistrate's court and the local chamber of commerce all rolled into one at the town gate. That's where everything happened. And notice how everything gets done by the book. And we'll see some examples of that in a moment. Uh, Remember where we are. These are the days of the judges when no one lived by the book. Well, one or two people lived by the book, as we can see here. But, But most of the time, everybody was living as he saw fit because there was no king. There was no central government. There was no authority. And they certainly didn't live with God as their king. They're all doing whatever they like. There was anarchy. There's no rule of law. And there was precious little life by covenant. Imagine what it must be like in the midst of this if you just want to do the right thing. 
how hard it is to try and do the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing. It's very hard. I take a really small uh, and by comparison trivial example. Now, um, I, I need to make a bit of a small confession here. Um, if I'm being brutally honest, I do have a bit of trouble keeping the speed limit, uh, as my family will tell you. I I'm trying. Uh, okay, I should be trying. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, there we are. You know how it is. Uh, and you know uh, on the main road um, out uh, uh, from um, the Marylebone Euston Road and the flyover going out towards the M40... You know, it's an A road, and, and there's a sort of dual carriageway. It goes to triple at some points and so on. You know that bit, the flyover, everything. Have you noticed they've brought the speed limit right down to 30? What are they thinking? <laughs> um, now, it's a nightmare, isn't it? You see the sign, you think, okay, now, I should be doing 30. But everybody's doing 60 or 70. And you're worried that if you do drop down to 30, you'll cause an accident. You'll sort of fall off the sides or something. It's really hard, and actually you feel as if it's more dangerous to go down to the speed limit than to do what everyone else is doing. So what do you do? You keep the speed limit. Now, that's a trivial example. But in a culture where everybody is doing as he sees fit, how on earth do you try to live the right way? That's trivial compared to a chaotic time. As we were thinking about Somalia on the first morning, how do you keep the law and the covenant when your neighbors, quite apart from the authorities and, and power brokers, are all living as they see fit? At the end of a point of a gun. I think that makes Boaz's determination to live by the covenant, to live with God as his king, all the more impressive, don't you think? Elimelech means my God is king, but he fled. Here is Boaz, who is trying to live with God as king. I mean, in that sort of climate, few, climate, few people would have batted an eyelid if he didn't live the right way, don't you think? They would just say, yeah, okay, well, everyone, that's the way everyone is. But think about it. He could so easily have just gone ahead and married Ruth without any legal or municipal bother. You know, wh why go through all this? Why would anyone care? After all, she was only a refugee. But Boaz wants to do it by the book. Now, I mentioned yesterday that there were two separate laws we need to consider. The first uh, we looked at, uh, after we'd understood how the land system worked, the, the, the first key law was the law of the kinsman redeemer. So when someone gets into financial di dire straits, uh, a relative was responsible for trying to, to loan them the money to get them out or to pay for their um, redemption um, in order to keep the land that was in their inheritance within the family. Now, that was primarily a financial issue. The kinsman redeemer... Uh, law is about money. But there's a related law we need to think about, and that is the law of leveret marriage. And this is further evidence of God's concern for the vulnerable and the protection of uh, prevention of land being accumulated by a rich minority. The kinsman redeemer was expected to look after the financial needs of a family up a creek, of members of the family up the creek. But what if that relative had died? What if he left a widow and children? Well, the leveret marriage law was an added safety net. All right? It's not the same thing as the kinsman redeemer, but it's, it goes together with it often, and it certainly does in our story. 
Incidentally, it's called leveret. It's nothing to do with uh, the Levites. It's from the Latin word levir, which means a brother-in-law. So it's not a Hebrew word at all, but um, it's called the leveret marriage law, just so that you know. It's all about the in-laws uh, taking care of a widow. Now, not only did this provide a social service, it meant that land stayed within the families God had allotted it to. So look back at Deuteronomy 25. This is where it gets spelled out. This is uh, Deuteronomy 25. <clears throat> if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, that, notice that's the key, without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. So there. Now, I agree that that seems very odd. Um, it is weird. Um, and it seems very alien in our culture. I suspect one reason it feels alien is because we have reduced marriage to just a matter of personal preference and romance. Now, there are some cultures that don't seem to have that at all. That's another issue. But in the West, that's not our problem. We think marriage is just about me and my satisfaction and fulfillment. But marriage is far more important to society than what it means to just the two married partners. It has huge social implications. It is, well, it is in itself social glue. It is crucial for the health of the extended families and indeed society. And marriage breakdown is therefore surely one key contributory factor to societies losing their way. Now, haven't the recent riots proved that with just, the, 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 just numbers of absent fathers or non-existent fathers? In the ancient world, this enabled family lines to be sustained. The interesting thing is, and Chris Wright, I was talking to him about this before we got here, and he helpfully pointed this out to me. He said, the interesting thing is that the brother who decides not to marry the widowed sister-in-law has no penalty. He's not punished for it. Um, the only consequences are being spat at by the woman he rejects. And I suppose, you know, that's pretty unpleasant, but you can live with that, and it's only once. <laughs> it's deemed a humiliation for her, notice. But it brings him a bad reputation. But that's all. He's not punished. But with Elimelech's family, of course, the situation's even more complicated because not only is Naomi too old to, to marry again and have children... I mean, there's nothing to stop her marrying again, but she can't have children because she's too old. Uh, but the, ch the situation she's in is that the children she did have have both died. And Orpah stayed behind, and we understand that, and have, you know, there's no problem with that at all. 
Um, so that's why the pressure is on Ruth. If this family line is to survive and the land that was their inheritance as a family is to stay within the family household. Now, it's a, I, I completely understand. This is a bit tricky to get one's heads around. It, it's sort of, you know, legal. I mean, there are lawyers out there who can explain it better than I can. I'll leave it to them. We might get someone to the question panel. <laughs> so if you lawyers to give me a hard time, that's where you'll be. Um, <clears throat> but Boaz is determined to help. So let's get back to the story. Well, Boaz is very shrewd, uh, but uh, the, the, the future is not certain. Um, here is Carolyn James again um, speaking about uh, this, uh, the situation, and she sums it up well. Elimelech's legacy ran out when Naomi buried their sons and her monthly cycle ceased. In the eyes of the community, Elimelech is now a lost cause. But Ruth is not ready to concede defeat. In an act of raw courage, she persuades Boaz to join forces with her in rescuing Elimelech from the jaws of annihilation and Naomi from the grip of poverty and futility. It is a long shot, and both of them know it. But God specializes in lost causes, and they are both willing to take enormous risks, believing Yahweh is moving them to act and will grant them success. And this is the crucial thing. Who is the person that needs saving here? It's not Ruth. It's not, in fact, Naomi, it's Elimelech, because his name is basically going to be blotted out from the records, because there will be no one to inherit the land. Do you see the point? And what is amazing about Ruth is that she is determined to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, notice how Boaz plays it in, in chapter 4. First, uh, he gets the guy interested in the land. It's absolutely ingenious, this. The land was quite an investment. Redeem it. So, so pay, pay uh, Naomi for effectively the loan for, for the use of that land until the Jubilee in 50 years' time or whatever it is. And during that period, you get all the produce from the harvest of it. Uh, so uh, it could be years off the Jubilee. So, you know, that, that's a pretty good investment. It makes economic sense. So verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, how good of you, and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I'll know. No one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. So it's beautifully neutral, isn't it? This is the sort of business, you know, he's drawing up the contracts as they speak. Uh, this is the situation. You have first, uh, first right of refusal. Uh, are you up for it? Well, you have to be a fool to say no. By itself, it would have been a win-win situation, wouldn't it? Mr. What's-his-name gets to live off more land, so he has more crops to sell and everything else, so that'll, that'll do nicely. And Naomi gets some money to live off in her widowhood. She has a pension. That's great. So by in itself, the kinsman-redeemer law works brilliantly, doesn't it? Everyone's happy. So Mr. What's-His-Name doesn't look a gift in the horse in the mouth, and he jumps it. He says, yeah, I'll redeem it, you bet. Now by saying that, he is therefore asserting his right as the closest relative. He's saying, yep, I have a right over you, Boaz, yeah, I'll do it. He's unwittingly also taking on the responsibilities that come with it. Do you see the trap? 
very cunning. Boaz is clever. The Leverett marriage law now comes into force because Elimelech's family still has the potential for a newborn through Ruth. Although, as we saw before, she's childless. So there's no guarantee. There's still a risk involved, but this is the best option. So, verse 5, Boaz said, Ah, right, okay. Well, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabite... Ah, did you notice that? First time she's mentioned in chapter 4, just slipped in there, and she's Ruth the Moabitess again. When you do this, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Ah, now that's different. I'm sure Boaz was banking on the response of verse 6, don't you? Uh, Then I I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, what do you mean, endanger his own estate? Well, you see, if they have children, then the children will take the estate estate that's due them. So it doesn't come to him at all, eventually in time. So it's not such a great investment. It doesn't make so much financial sense because you'll have to share it or divide it up. And the more children you have, the the smaller the bits that each one gets, do you see? So he's thinking, hmm, actually not such a good idea after all. I'm not sure really I'm for that. But of course, as far as Boaz is concerned, that's just what the doctor ordered. But it's funny. You can't help feeling that the narrator slightly disapproves. I mean, four times, four times in this chapter, Mr. What's-His-Name gets called the kinsman redeemer. Just to ram home the point. You see verse 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 8. Here he is. We don't know his name, but he's the kinsman redeemer. So he should jolly well have stumped up and done his job. So in the story, he's the kinsman redeemer who doesn't. Now, we're not told whether or not Ruth is watching. If so, did she go up to Mr. What's-His-Name and spit in his face? Uh, The law allowed her to do that. We don't know. But even if she didn't, uh, of course, we know this wasn't the humiliation it might have been because this is precisely the outcome that both Boaz and Ruth wanted. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. As we're told in verse 7, this was the traditional way of legalizing transactions. But as we heard from Deuteronomy 24, there's another sort of legal spin to it. Having your sandal taken was part of the humiliation for being the non-redeeming kinsman. But... The romantics are all a flutter now because all the obstacles are removed. Get the violins out. Here we go. The, 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 the air has suddenly gone rose-tinted. Do you feel that? Uh, and the key lesson, though, I think, is that Boaz doesn't cut any corners at all. He was prepared to obey the law even if it made things profoundly inconvenient for him. I mean, I guess he knew that this guy, once uh, the, the guy saw that there was land and so on, when Boaz had married uh, Ruth, maybe he could have contested and said, no, I'm the, lo- the nearest or whatever. Who knows? Maybe he was just sort of cutting it off at the pass. But, but whatever happens, he went about it through obeying, obeying the law. And I think one of the problems we, we have these days is that we confuse legal obedience with legalism. If you were at Hugh's seminar last night, he very helpfully explained the difference between wanting to be obedient and being legalistic. And it's all about attitude. Legal obedience is doing what is right because it's revealed by God. 
Legalism is trying to earn God's favor by your obedience. Well, Boaz isn't trying to earn God's favor. He knows his God. That's why he does this. It takes guts to be disobedient in a to be obedient in a culture of disobedience. I mean, I think of my parents-in-law, Rachel's parents. They lived and worked in East Africa for 30 out of 40 of their working years. At the very beginning, when they first got married and started working in the 60s in Uganda, they made a pledge never to pay a bribe. Can you imagine how difficult that made life? And it was incredibly inconvenient. Sometimes their, their freight would sit on the Mombasa docks for weeks, but they never paid a bribe. And this is amazing. They were determined and they were honored and vindicated. In the 30 years they lived in Africa, they never paid a bribe. And they believed that God helped them through. Are we prepared to pay, obey God even when it's inconvenient, embarrassing, or costly? Secondly, there's a redemption witnessed. God has vindicated Boaz and Ruth. A closer kinsman redeemer has backed off, leaving the coast clear for marriage. But this is far more than a love match. This is a redemption. God has rescued a whole family. And through this rescue, the whole world will be rescued. But to go by the book, it all has to be formally witnessed and agreed. So the town gate there, in the presence of all the local great and the good, Boaz makes it very clear what it all signifies. Verse 9, another of the great Boaz speeches. Today your witnesses that I've bought Naomi, from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Marlon. That's the kinsman redeemer bit done. I have also acquired Ruth the Burbites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of, name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or the town records. That's the leveret marriage bit done. All right, two separate laws being obeyed by one transaction. Today you are witnesses, and they all shout, we are witnesses. You might be a bit alarmed by this idea of, of Boaz acquiring Ruth. It sounds rather like the language of a slave market, doesn't it? But in fact, in a way, that's precisely what this is. You see, Ruth and Naomi were slaves, effectively, to, property, uh, to, to poverty, which meant they were slaves to a terrible future. It didn't matter thinking about it. And in so doing, Ruth was freed to marry the well-to-do Boaz, and Elimelech's line had a future. This is a happy day. Everyone's happy. It cost Boaz quite a lot of money to pay for his family's freedom and future, but that's the man he was. He went the second mile. He showed Hesed love to God, to Naomi, to Ruth, and to Elimelech. Boaz showed love to his cousin Elimelech. And the whole story has come about as the consequence of the Chesed love first shown by Ruth to Naomi. Ruth has been the catalyst for this whole amazing episode. In God's purposes, you see, this is the amazing thing. In God's purposes, it took a foreigner to get Chesed back into Israel. Did anyone deserve it? Did Naomi have a right to Ruth's love? Did Boaz? Did Ruth have a right to Boaz's love? None of them. It was all of grace. Grace is costly, but grace is free. 
Grace is what we hold out for. This is a picture of a chap called Ron Nickell who heads up Prison Fellowship International. He's got a standard talk that he delivers to prisoners around the world. He often says, we don't know who will make it into heaven. Jesus indicated a lot of people will face surprises. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Nickell goes on, though, but we do know that some thieves and murderers will be there. Jesus promised heaven to a thief on the cross, and the apostle Paul was an accomplice to murder. And Nickell goes on, I have watched the expressions on the faces of prisoners in places like Chile, Peru, and Russia as Ron's point stick sinks in. For them, the scandal of grace sounds too good to be true because many of them are thieves and murderers. But it's so good precisely because it is true. The prayer of blessing over this legal event is telling, isn't it? Uh, The elders pray for three different things. Uh, May Yahweh make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. May you have standing in Ephrathah. May your family be like Perez. Each of those is significant, of course. And they look back to moments in Israel's history when Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, did amazing things in surprising ways. Because you see, there's one aspect of all of this that I've not mentioned recently. It's all very well for Boaz to marry Ruth, to look after Naomi and the family line. But there are no guarantees. Who knows whether they'll be be able to have children? Last time Ruth was married, they didn't. We have no idea, no, we have no understanding of why. Uh, modern medicine, of course, tells us that it takes two to tango, as they say. Both man and woman have to be fertile to conceive. They had no way of knowing that then. But even in our modern, medically advanced world, conception still has mysteries. And in the end, a new life is always a sign of God's goodness and common grace always a miracle. So this prayer to the creator of life is entirely apt. And look, at the NIV is a bit bland in verse 11. It can be translated, may Yahweh make the wife who is coming into your home. Ruth the Moabitess is a Moabitess no longer. She's been completely incorporated into the family, God's family. And as we'll see, she's in family in more ways than one. And Naomi's great wish of chapter 1 has come about. Ruth, uh, why Rachel and Leah? Well, they were sisters who, with their servant girls, were the founding mothers of Israel, bearing 12 sons to Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. Interesting that this, this prayer is here. It's an overflowing prayer. Uh, a prayer for an overflowing family, far more than the required one son, is praying for Ruth to be the mother of a new family of God, in a way. It's quite something, isn't it, when you think about it, for a Moabite woman to be included in the same breath as Israel's two most important women. Ruth, Rachel, and Leah, in one breath. That's true acceptance, isn't it? Secondly, uh, to be prosperous in Ephrathah, that's the old name from, for Bethlehem. It's the same place. Boaz has incurred its significant costs for his act of grace and hesed, but the prayer is for him to prosper, to have standing and prosper from the, what he's done as a result. 
Now, you might think that having a large family in agricultural world uh, was more stressful because you had more mouths to feed, but, but no. It also meant more hands on deck, more people to help. So this was a prayer for God to bless the sacrifices Boaz had made. Incidentally, Ephrathah was also the place that Rachel had given birth to Benjamin back in Genesis 35. But the standing is more than material. It's about a name that will last. Could it be that a prayer for this family to be known for more than what Boaz and Ruth have done takes a few generations to be answered, but man, when it gets answered, it blows your brains. And Tamar bearing Perez, this third one, this is a pretty dodgy story, one of the most dodgy stories in Genesis. Uh, but um, many series, when they're going through Genesis, miss this bit out because it doesn't quite fit into the sort of Joseph narrative. Uh, but it does have a part to play. But Judah is the senior brother, and he fails to do his leveret marriage duty with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who's left widowed and without a family. It's all very iffy, but Tamar has to trick Judah into sleeping with her so that she can conceive and do his duty. And Perez is the result. In all likelihood, all the people living around Bethlehem in the time of Boaz were probably descendants from Perez. That's this, uh, this area. And the point was that God had not left this Canaanite woman, Tamar, in deserted in a crisis and included her in his plans for the world. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what God has done for Ruth. But fortunately for Ruth, Boaz is more honorable and righteous than his ancestor Judah, and he doesn't need to be tricked. There's also one final element. Perez was actually a twin. He had a brother called Zerah. And the prayer, therefore, is for Ruth to have twins. And if you have twins, it means that Boaz's legacy could safely go to one twin and Limelech's could go to another without it all being split up. And so the people prayed, and Yahweh answered in unimaginable ways. And so finally we come to a redemption for eternity. They marry, they make love, Verse 13, Yahweh enables Ruth to get pregnant. And they have a son. Look how much has changed. Ruth, an alien, widowed, childless. Now she's included, married, and a mother. Most importantly, as Naomi's friends recognize, Yahweh has done this. It's poignant, isn't it? Naomi had gone so low, she felt cursed and abandoned by God. Even though she still believed in his existence, she blamed him. I understand that. But she wasn't right to. But there's been a transformation for her. She had been bitter, widowed, and childless. Now she is a blessed with a new son, and that's the key. Obed, this tiny new life is placed in her lap. Ruth didn't have to do that. She didn't have to. She'd done everything she needed to do. She had a son. She preserved the family line. But this is the final remarkable act of grace was to give her son to Naomi. And such is the grace of Ruth 
that Naomi is well and truly blessed. And the people of Bethlehem know it. Uh, the women of Bethlehem, praise be to Yahweh, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Ruth has shown incredible hesed as we look over the whole story. She returned to Judah with her, with Naomi. She went to work in the fields to provide for her. She took initiatives in her work. She obeyed Naomi's risky advice. She gives her son Obed to Naomi. That is extraordinary love. It is overwhelming love. It is inspiring love, and it is true love because it is God's love. And the resonances are in Scripture everywhere. And I want to use the last few minutes just to sort of pan through them, just for the next ten minutes or so, and then we'll get into groups. Let's pan back in time first. We, of course, close the book of Ruth with the family line. Perez to Hezron to Ram to Aminadab to Nashon to Salmon to Boaz to Oed to Jesse to David. That's where this is all going. The last word of the book, in both English and in Hebrew, is David. Why is that significant? Well, what was the last word of the book of the previous book, Judges? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The last word of Judges, there's no king. The last word of Ruth, David. In this dark and lawless time, God preserves a family tree, a family line, from which would come the king, the the nation so desperately needs. But then step further back. Think back to the origins. Think back to the family of Judah. Remember the extraordinary words of Jacob, Israel, to his son Judah. Genesis 49. Let me just read some of them to you. Judah. Do you remember Jacob is going through the whole family and talking about each son? And he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah, the lion of Judah. There's verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. What an extraordinary prophecy. This tribe will bring about the ruler of the nations. That's looking back, but let's start looking forward. There are a number of ways we could do this, but the the first is to think about what I call the paradoxes of prediction. Turn to 2 Samuel 7, would you? Two Samuel seven, David is on the throne. And he's brought, pre- brought peace to Israel after the terrible and foreign civil wars of the Judges and Saul periods. So chapter 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies. So he's conquered Jebus. Remember, we thought about Jebus on the first or second day. I can't remember which. And uh, he has now conquered it, Jerusalem. It is now his capital. The nation is united the enemies have been dealt with. 
and he has brought rest. And so naturally, you know, David says, okay, well, look, that bit of the work's done. What about you, God? I need to build you a house. I mean, I'm in a palace, you're in a tent, doesn't quite compute. We've got to do something about that. That's not right. But God's happy with that for now. He says, look, don't worry. You're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And the nice thing is, uh, in the Hebrew, the pun, the wordplay works in both languages. It means house can mean a building or a dynasty. And God says, I'm going to build you a house. And God looks into the future, tells him through Nathan what's going to happen. But then look at verse 10. It gets very weird. I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Hang on. I thought that's where they were. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I pointed leaders or judges over my people, Israel. I'll also give you rest from your enemies. That doesn't make sense. The chapter opened saying that he had rest from his enemies. And now God is saying, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. What's going on? That's very weird. And then he says there's going to be a descendant, descended from Jacob and Leah, Judah and Tamar, Boaz and Ruth, who will one day do amazing things. Look at verse 12. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Now, to begin with, we all think that's Solomon. And he starts, well, he's the one to build the temple. He builds the house of God. He was the Messiah, like his father. They were both the Messiahs. They were both anointed to be king. They were both Christs, Christ David, Christ Solomon. But we soon realize Solomon hardly qualifies. After all, according to verse 16, his rule will go on forever. And when Solomon died, the nation was split in half. It can't be him. And in fact, if you think about it, Solomon showed far less chesed than his great-great-great-grandfather Boaz. Not more. Which is why the prophets look forward to another son of David to come. So turn on to uh, Ezekiel, would you? In the resources booklet, I've given a whole load of um, other... Um, hopes, page six of the resources booklet, looking for uh, great David's greatest son. Uh, and the messiahs that follow Solomon are a rum bunch. None of them really matches up. Have a look at Jeremiah 13 to, to get a sense of that. But uh, none of them live the way the covenant righteousness of Boaz and Ruth demonstrates. They're pale reflections of them. Boaz and Ruth really are the shining stars of the Old Testament. So no one of the prophets clinging to the promises to Judah and to David speak of a new Christ to come. There are many great moments. Have a look at the table. But the most intriguing for me is Ezekiel 34. So turn to Ezekiel 34, would you? And in Ezekiel 34, he uses the metaphor that the role, uh, of, the, for the role of the nation's leaders, the prophets, priests, um, rulers, the metaphor of David's first job. What was David's first job? He was a shepherd. And Ezekiel takes that metaphor, or God through Ezekiel, and uh, these shepherds, the prophets, priests, and rulers, are doing a terrible job. They only look after themselves, Ezekiel 34.1. But God steps in, and uh, in verse uh, 15, 
God says, I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Yahweh. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Similar themes of, say, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Here God is saying, these guys are doing a terrible job. I'm going to have to step in and be shepherd. But then look down to verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Now, what's going on there? One minute he's saying, I'm going to do it. The next minute he's saying, David's going to do it. Very weird. How can God be shepherd at the same time as David? Doesn't make any sense. It's a tension that the Old Testament leaves hanging. I don't think the Old Testament knows how to resolve it. There are many like that. Many, many, many like that. And it's only when we get to Matthew chapter 1 and the ensuing accounts of the Gospels that we find precisely how that tension is resolved. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, who is the Word become flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I am the good shepherd, he said. But what of the Ruth resonances? Well, let's rush through these and then leave you to just go and follow them up in your own time. What, what has happened in the story of Ruth? Well, We've seen food provided in a famine. There was famine in the house of bread, and God brought abundance in the house of bread. More food than they knew what to do with. Where is Jesus born? He is born in the house of bread. Well, of course he is. It's the family home. That's where his ancestors lived. It's where Ruth ended up, where David came from. It's where they lived. No wonder Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem for the census the family home. And uh, it's where the family roots were. But it was rather appropriate to be born in the house of bread because later Jesus declared himself not only the good shepherd but also the bread of life. He said, come to me and you'll never go hungry. He offers spiritual and eternal food. Boaz gave Ruth material food and it was exactly what she needed. And that is a sign of God. God is concerned for the material Let us never get so super spiritual that we think he's just interested in my soul. It's nonsense. He's interested in the whole of me. We don't cut ourselves up into bits. God doesn't. He didn't make us like that. He is concerned for the material, and through Boaz, Ruth is fed. Naomi is fed. Bread to keep her alive. But of course, you don't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from God. I am the bread of life. Feed on me, and you'll live. Then just think who this descendant of Ruth and Boaz uh, was and what he would do for those enslaved to the abject poverty of sin. He did what a kinsman redeemer does or should do. There are so many aspects that we could pick up on with this. Uh, I just want to pick up on on three. 
The first is that there's no shame. He's not ashamed of us. Do you remember what Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2? It's an amazing verse when you stop. The sovereign creator of the universe doesn't just tolerate us. He transforms us. And do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2? The one who makes men holy and those who are holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Sometimes family can be so embarrassing, can't they? My children often complain, Dad, you're so embarrassing. My children are very quick to disown me. Of course, it's mutual. (laughs) Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's prepared to say, yeah, she's with me. He's with me. They're my family. Isn't that amazing? Boaz was not ashamed of Elimelech, even though he had every reason to be after what Elimelech had done, don't you think? He just, just walked off, left everyone behind. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. He's our true kinsman. In fact, as Proverbs say, you could apply it to him. He sticks closer than a brother. Closer than a brother. He's our sibling. And then think, you know, as our kinsman, think of what he does to rescue, to redeem. Look what he does with the wealth. All the wealth he has at his disposal. He's, he's not unwilling to spare any expense. No expense is spared here. Uh, Chapter uh, 8 of 2 Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Chesed is costly. It cost him every cent. Buying back slaves to free them is always going to be costly. That's why in the end, Mr. What's-His-Name was not up for it. And in a sense, who can blame him? Perhaps he had his own family already. Perhaps they were children he had to feed. Perhaps they were people who were going to divide up the land already. Another family, that's really going to complicate matters. Yeah, I don't want a bit of that. But for Jesus to redeem his kinsmen, it cost him everything. So that we could become rich. And then what an inheritance. There's no inheritance like it. No inheritance to compare. 1 Peter 1, verse, uh, verse 3. Praise be to God and the, fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. The inheritance that Boaz was able to give to Obed was temporary. Valuable, important, but temporary. Always in danger of perishing, spoiling, or fading. Isn't that what a famine reminds you? And then finally, he is the sovereign God of grace. 
And I've got a whole load of verses here in, in the table. It's on page six of the booklets. You can uh, look it up. And uh, I'll leave you to go through them. What I've tried to do with this is to take the, 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 the four groups of people who are most vulnerable and show how the old covenant was not unique, that the new covenant takes this seriously as well. And that Jesus does it and the early church does it. So I've tried to take, because Luke Acts go together, I've tried to take examples from Luke's gospel when Jesus does this and from the book of Acts when the church does this. And I'll leave you to go through with it. But you see, Jesus has said for the alien. You know, one of his most famous stories, the Good Samaritan, the hero is an enemy. Might as well call it the Good Merbite. Think of the faith shown by the Gentile centurion. That continues in the book of Acts. And Paul is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. God's chesed for women in a man's world. Jesus treated them with utmost respect and love. They were included in his closest companions. Many, many examples. They feature highly in many parts of Luke's gospel and indeed the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes on men and women. Luke emphasizes both men and women many times in his narrative. And the key, who's the key convert in Philippi? It's Lydia. And many prominent women are included in Berea, and so on and so on. They find this Jesus magnetic. Hesed for the vulnerable, the fatherless and the widows. That's especially clear in Luke's gospel. It's a big theme for Luke. But you see it in the healings, but also you see it in Acts. Uh, think of Acts 6. What's the big debate in the early church in those first few weeks? It's how to care for the widows. Almost split the church. But it didn't because they worked it all out to care for those most vulnerable. Finally, chesed for failures. This is a God who rescues despite sin and error. Elimelech led, left, but God redeemed. Let's wrap this all up. In Christ, all these disparate people come together, brought together as one in Christ. Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. God shows us chesed in Christ. Chesed is never a respecter of status, wealth, looks, education, race, gender, or intelligence. It never is. Such is the wonder of God's chesed. And if it is God's chesed to us, so should it be our chesed to others. Remember Ephesians 5? Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, you could translate that. Live as dearly loved children. Live a life of chesed just as Christ showed his chesed to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your love, the love in the gospel that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus. May we praise and adore him, the one who paid the infinite cost to make us infinitely rich. We praise you for that, Lord. May we never take it for granted. May we just be thrilled by who you are and what you've done. And may we live day by day lives of chesed. In Jesus' name, amen.